Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm joined by naturalist and TV presenter Nick Baker, best known for appearing on The Really Wild Show, Weird Creatures and Springwatch Unsprung to name a few. We talk about his passion for creepy crawlies, how wildlife presenting has changed over the years, and how he started his career in wildlife filmmaking. Also hang around till the end because I'll be announcing the next four or five podcasts, including what is going to be my biggest project ever, and letting you know the title of it and what it's going to be. Well, thanks for joining me, Nick. It's a pleasure, Jack. It's been a while. I know you've uh, well, we've been talking about doing this for some time, haven't we? Yeah, I feel like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a twitcher of, of wildlife personalities as I'm trying to contact all these people. And you've been like a, a rare migrant that I keep seeing, but we just can't quite twitch. But we've got there in the end. It's been a weird year like that. It's, it's strange. <laughs> it should be more accessible than ever before. But you've got to be feeling, you've got to be, yeah, you've got to be winning. You've got to be swinging to, to want to do this. And, um, and it's kind of, it's been one of those years, it was great. At the beginning of lockdown, I felt completely released from all the pressures of, of um, freelance life. Not that I was making any money or getting any government help, but it was weird. I felt like a, I was like a 10 year old with a mortgage. You know, that's how it felt. And I was just going out and playing. And then of course, when it unlocked and everyone went back, that's when I started feeling a bit rubbish. And I sort of went, I got a bit down in the dumps, to be honest with you. And it's taken a while of continuous sort of whipping myself along and sort of things have started moving again now. So I'm in a good space. I'm actually not in a good space literally right now because I'm stuck in a, in a room in Japan in quarantine. Uh, I've got to do two weeks in a airport hotel before I um, I'm released into the wild. So, um, but I'm, you know, it's a job and I'm really excited by that. You know, so it's a good place to be. Have you been to Japan before? I haven't. No, that's why it's proper exciting. It's, um, it's been one of those travel glitches. I've always wanted to come here. Quite a lot of what I'm into uh, comes from this neck of the woods. Um, mainly, I'm really into, I guess I'm on some kind of spectrum. I really like neat and tidy. I like little things of perfection. That's why I'm into insects. But Japan, of course, is famous for taking on board lots of like tri- Chinese traditions and, and owning them. So, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, aquascaping, for example, the, the art of aquascaping, bonsai, passion for little things, uh, the minuti, the sort of miniaturization of things sort of goes well. And there's quite a lot of an underlying natural or certainly nature based culture here. Um, so the Shinto culture is very much throughout Japan. So I'm expecting to like an awful lot of it. Also bikes, they're really into bikes. And of course, that's my other passion. So this place is full of, uh, you know, green infrastructure. Even here where I'm staying, which is, um, I think it's Tokyo's equivalent of Croydon, um, right by the airport, <laughs> airport hotel, really is pretty grey and grim. But there's people cycling everywhere. There's kind of pavements, wide pavements that are demarked clearly. You know, there's pavement, there's cyclists on one side, uh, pedestrians on the other. And they all sort of intermix and no one gets cross with each other it's sort of lovely it's sort of like a utopia in that sense i think i'm right in saying that the bullet trains in uh, in japan are based off a of kingfisher's beak i think that's oh, right that isn't it is, that is right yes it's to do with the um it's to stop the let's try and get this right so when a kingfisher hits the water um it shouldn't be possible there should be a big noise when it hits the water and they were and, it, and they don't have it and that's because they've got a certain shape to the very tip of the bill little grooves 
Um, and they were having problems with the bullet train when it went through tunnels and things, because it, it made, it was causing big noise, basically. So it was a very good idea, but it was very noisy. And then they worked out, if they stole this idea from the Kingfisher's beak, you'd lose the noise. And I believe that's the story. I, 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 I'm actually going on the bullet train in a couple, well, in a, a week and a half's time. So uh, we're going up to Fukushima from, uh, from Tokyo. So uh, uh, we're going to be catching the bullet train up there. So I'm quite excited by that as well. Yeah. So when you go through the tunnels, you've got to kind of get your ear hanging out and just see <laughs> how well how well it's working on the front yeah <laughs> that's like, yeah just dangling just to encourage it to go um so you, you mentioned briefly there but although you're a general naturalist you certainly tend to lean towards creepy crawlies so what is it about invertebrates that you find so fascinating i think it's just what i said it's that they are they are their perfection you know that the way the body plates all come together sort of engineering you know evolutionary engineering and also there's a lot of them, they're very accessible. And I suspect they were my first love really in many ways. Even though I was sort of into them, I, you know, I was aware of birds and things, I'm very short-sighted and as a kid, I think it took a little while before that was diagnosed. So of course, you know, I couldn't see the birds at the end of the garden because they were blurry, but the, uh, <laughs> the ants were right there and I could focus on them. So, um, um, so yeah, I think that's probably where it started. And, and also they underpin everything, you know, even, even your passion you know it all starts you know you can you could get into your trout and your salmon but then the really the things they're eating or certainly the things they're feeding on are feeding on um either when they're small or when they're you know they're feeding on other fish that predate you know caddis fly and, and mayfly and yeah. things like river fly uh, species and of course they they're everywhere you know you might not like the idea of invertebrates the creepy crawlies and beasts, call them what you like but you certainly guaranteed will like some of the things that I like them. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. there's something in it for us all. But uh, but they are very important. And we're beginning to understand just how, well, beginning, well entomologists have understood this for years, but of course, uh, it's beginning to make the news now, you know, Buggermageddon, the, the massive decline of uh, insects, 80% decline in insects in some of the studies. Um, we know that moths and butterflies are declining. And of course, when we're losing those, uh, they're the visible ones. It's the invisible things, the things that make up the uh, the biomass, as it were. Um, when we're losing those, is it any wonder we're losing insectivorous birds and that fish numbers are down and bat numbers are down? And you know, it has a massive knock-on ripple effect throughout the ecosystem. So that cascade is all part of the energetics that I'm fascinated by. So there's lots of reasons: the characters, the the, the solutions to life, the the colours, the shapes, the um, uh, the morphology, all these things fascinate me about insects. I saw a, a great time lapse of that someone put some leaf litter in one tub and then they put leaf litter in with worms and wood lice and whatever. And within a couple of, it might not even be a couple of months, it might be a shorter time span, but the leaf litter was almost gone with the insects. But then without them, it just stays there and rots. And it just shows you, you might not see it with the naked eye in instant time, but they've got an important job. I mean, they've got lots of important jobs, but just one of just cleaning up nature's mess to a degree they're incredibly important aren't they that's right yeah, they're absolutely essential in, in that respect and they i mean you know but it's dead bodies dead leaves whatever it is they are they are part of that symphony of decomposition which um which we can't do without you know and it's it's what maintains our soils and ultimately what maintains the food that we grow in those soils so you know at every level these things are relevant and that's i guess it's sort of my I guess it's my life goal is to celebrate them and share them with as many people as possibly can. Definitely. I'm a, you know, yeah, I'm a champion of the fish. I think it's a, it's great to champion the underdogs because birds and mammals are, are lovely, but they've got enough, uh, enough people sh spouting about them. So 
let's say. Uh, yeah, well, I think I like what, what about what you do. You you take a subject and you look at it from a different angle, which is pretty much all, all that you do when you're sharing the invertebrates with people. But I mean, I, I like my fish as well, and I spend a lot of time bobbing around in rivers, uh, the ridicule of my friends with a snorkel, and just <laughs> watching. I mean, I, I used to fish, you know, I used to be an angler. My dad was, was a keen angler, and I would shadow him um, down to the riverbank whenever I could. Um, it was good father-son time, but the, uh, you know, I got my copy of Mr. Crabtree Goes Fishing, just like every other kid, and, um, and I enjoyed it until I learned to dive. Now, as soon as I learned to dive, I kind of put the rod down, because really the only reason I fished was to see the fish. I didn't want to eat them, and I didn't really like, you know, the whole fiddling around with a disgorger. It just felt so invasive. Um, um, and then I ended up, um, I kept a, a fish tank when I was a kid, it was full of coarse fish. So, um, I was, again, I hate that word. Coarse sort of suggests they're not fine, and there's nothing yeah. finer than a, than a, um, a, they always remind me of a silvery Burlington sock, the side of a gudgeon, you know, yeah. that lovely sort of silvery blue patterning on a gudgeon. Um, so I had a tank with gudgeon and roach and rudd, um, and I, I sort of had it at the bottom of the garden because uh, I wasn't allowed fish in the house. I wasn't allowed any animals in the house, not after stick end set gates. That was a disaster. Anyway, um, but I, I, I really, you know, I kept the fish there. And in fact, for a moment, the whole Mr. Crabtree goes fishing. For any of your um, podcast um, audience, it's a, it was a brilliant sort of, I guess it was an illustrated, almost like an illustrated novel between a, a bloke, a, a granddad and his grandson, I think, or was it father and son? I can never work it out, but no, was he was like his, yeah, they weren't related. I think he was just like, well, a men- it'd probably be a bit dodgy in, in today's time, but at the time it was completely innocent and it was just yeah, like was a mentor. And he would show how to read the water. Uh, and when you cast out what your float was doing and he related it to the fish underneath. So I did that. I actually would actually fish from my own fish tank. I'd sit there and watch the, what the fish were doing to my bait and my, my and the tackle under the surface and how it related to the, so I put the two together myself and that was quite interesting. But but to be honest with you, it's the fish I loved, you know, it's hunting for the fish. And as soon as I die, I learned to die, I, I could sort of cut out that sort of slightly uncomfortable process. and. Um, um, and, and swim with them. And, uh, and then you see, and as you well know, and that's why I love your work is because I relate to it because it reminds, I know, I know what you show. I know your photographs and um, I feel I know the fish. And to see that, to see someone who sees the world through that lens is really refreshing. And, uh, um, and that's, that, you know, that's why I love it. Definitely. I, I'm probably the same. I, I used to fish, a, I still fish a little bit now, but nowhere near as much as I used to. And it's, uh, if it's given the choice between putting the mask and snorkel on and picking up a rod, then there's no competition. It's, it's get the, the snorkel and, and, and get stuck into it. But I have actually dived in Dartmoor uh, in one of the big pools on the, is it the Tavi? The Tavi, is that the river in Dartmoor? Yeah, 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 and um, yeah, yeah, exactly. there was a big salmon pool uh, behind a caravan park or, uh, near Tavistock. And um, yeah. that was amazing. Massive sea trout. And uh, it was a little bit uh, peaty, but you could, you know, go, go down. It was like, you know, just another world. It was in- incredible. So. A beautiful yeah it's like beautiful. swimming in tea isn't it without milk. it is um, yeah and, and so for <laughs> photography, well i guess from a photography point of view it adds a it's, it's odd but it adds a real atmosphere did you ever did you take any photos when you did it i, I did a little bit of video i mean I, it was very dark and i didn't take a torch or i got so deep and i was yeah. like i could see fuck all <laughs> so it got a bit <laughs> bad but um yeah i i don't mind it i'm i'm not a traditional underwater photographer because most traditional underwater like it gin clear and no backscatter no bits in the water but i, I quite like that because it's how it is that's just what you get in rivers yeah, so yeah, it doesn't yeah. well, it's, it tells you where you are when you see the color of the water it it, yeah. it, it, it locates you very well 
But, yeah. Uh, but you should come down again. You should come down again. We're going to do it. Having a, having a, I've got some salmon pools that I use quite a lot. They're a little bit, I guess they are peaty, but they're probably a little bit less peaty than the one that uh, that you're talking about. But uh, but yeah, yeah. when you, when the uh, the sea trout are running and when the uh, the salmon are running all at the same time, you can you can just hang there in the water with them, and they're just amazing fish to see them that close and especially when they're on the way up and they're not, they're not battered and covered in, um, what do you call it, uh, salmon fungus or whatever yeah. you call it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'd like to. I would like to do it because I always end up going north as a salmon, but I forget that, you know, Devon and, and Cornwall, when I, when I used to live there, there's a few good little salmon rivers there for sea trout and salmon, so I should... Uh... Yeah, there's nice places in the estuaries as well where you can see them sort of stacking up and getting into a holding pattern before the, uh, the river goes into spate. So, uh, yeah, some nice places. And it's quite, a, I mean, it's quite amazing just to be sort of swimming over these sort of sediments of the estuary and suddenly you you sort of you see something in, in the murk in front of it you think it's just a you know a tree trunk or something and you realize it's just this solid mass of fish just sitting there waiting just 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 holding their you know just conserving their energy and, uh, and it's amazing how they do it. in fact there's been a study done isn't there recently where um they've worked out that even if a salmonid that's a you know a fish or a salmon is dead if you place it in a stream in the right place it's so hydrodynamic, as long as it's not going to stick. Um, it's so hydrodynamic, it actually effectively still moves up or at least holds its place in the, uh, in the, in the flow of the water. So as long as you find the right, the sweet spot, like just behind a rock or something, it's so hydrodynamic, it literally can stick there. And, and Is that right? No, and the fish holds on, yeah. So energetically, there's no... Um, is that the second thing I've taught you about freshwater fish? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. I, I, obviously, I don't know as much as I thought I did, so I might need to. Uh... Well, that's what that's all about. Is yeah. Funny. I think was it the other day? It was when was it? I think I was telling you about the uh, the singing of a of the bullhead. And, that was uh, in the Grant Arms, wasn't it? In uh, when right. when we saw each other in Scotland. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Singing bullheads is another one, and that's that was um, that's another one of my favourite things. In fact, I heard it for the first time while snorkeling thinking what an, uh, i thought i had a you know you get bubbles in your snorkel and it makes a weird noise that echoes and you, you pick up the sound in your jawbone and then that transfers to so it amplifies in your head in weird ways and, and you're thinking no that's that's different that's that's too regular for a bubble that's kind of making it it was a kind of a real kind of noise and you just and it, and it kept repeating and and it i didn't know what it was and and i i talked spoke to loads of people about this i can't remember who told me Someone said so, so I was doing something. Oh, it was probably it was probably an ex-girlfriend of mine who um, was you know used to keep fish. She was a head aquarist at one of the British zoos, and uh, she really loved you know the sound of fish. And she was telling me about um, you know how her fish used to vocalise. In fact, I used to have I used to keep um, uh, birchiers or birches or bashirs. I don't know how you say it. B i c h i r s. They're the strange kind of living fossil type fish. They're an African thing, also known as Congo eels. Um, and oh, okay, yeah. the fish tank. And they, they used to drum on their swim bladder and they'd make a really a real grumbly noise. If I, if I turned the light on in the room, all you'd heard was this coming from the tank in the corner of the room. They didn't like it very much. And well, it's funny you say that because we, we did a podcast. It's not out yet, but it will be out by the time this one's out with a, a, a guy all about fish acoustics, Steve Simpson at the University of Exeter. And uh, oh, okay. he, he did some of the work on um, Blue Planet 2 recording reef fish and different vocalizations. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, because people don't think fish talk. So that, that's a kind of a, a plug for a podcast that I've already done, but it's not out now, but it will be out when this one's out, if that makes sense. That makes okay, no well, sense. Well, I'm fascinated. I want to listen to that one. That's, <laughs> that's right up my street. That's the, exactly the sort of thing that makes me buzz. <laughs> mm. So I was reading up that you describe yourself as a bio 
biophile or you have biophilia, um, which sounds yeah. a little bit like an STI, but I'm sure it's not. So can you explain <laughs> what, what that is? Well, it's not my word. It's, no. um, it's a word that was coined by E.O. Wilson, I believe. It, it, I, I believe, anyway, that's certainly where I came across it first. And it is that, it's that natural affinity with living things, with the natural world. And another way of looking at it is you're just sensitive to life. Um, and quite a lot of, I mean, we're all biophiles when we're born. Where you know, you watch a child sitting in his pushchair and if there's a fly on the ceiling or a spider running along the skirting board, it holds their attention. They're drawn to it in some way and they want to poke it and touch it or put it in their mouth. You know, that's the same. I'm not saying, I've, well, actually, no, I do put a lot of wildlife in my mouth, but that's a completely different um, uh, that's, that's another area of, of sensory perception that I'm, I'm running through. But, Taste uh, nature. <laughs> gets me into all sorts of trouble, that one. But, um, but the point is, is yeah, when you're young, we're all into it. And then I guess the taboos of modern society and our disconnecting selves kind of come into play. And that stuff stamped out as being dirty or filthy. Don't do that. Ugh, fly, you know, all that sort of stuff. And as a consequence, we turn off. Or we're trained to turn off that uh, that um, that instinct, which which actually would have been, you know, we've all got it inside us, and I think we're all frustrated because we're not exercising it. It's it is our inner hunter gatherer. It's the part of us, you know, most of our existence as a species, we've been hunter gatherers. Only in relatively recent times that we've settled down and and farmed and then built civilizations. Um, so for most of our evolution, we've been you know free ranging hunter gatherers, which means we've had to be in tune with nature in order to one know where the food's coming from and find our food, but also to avoid being food. So. I think being a naturalist, being a biophile, simply just letting that part of our, um, our humanity uh, rise to the surface and, and, and have equal footing with the, with, with, with the modern bit. So yeah, that's, that's why I describe myself as a biophile, because it describes me, it's, it's, it's my obsession. I'm, I'm here in Tokyo, I'm in, in, in this you know, fairly urbanized environment, Yet the only way I can relate to it, I mean, you know, the culture is so alien to me. Um, you know, I don't, I, you know, I can't even, I went to use the washing machine downstairs last night and, um, you know, the, the guest laundry. And there's a washing machine. I know how to use a washing machine. I'm a modern man, but it's all in, it's all in symbols and, and a language I don't understand. So I'm just randomly stabbing at buttons. However, I walk outside and there's a bird, there's a bulbul in the tree singing, and there's a, you know, there's, a, there's an ant on the tree. And I already know something about that. It draws me in and it gives me a real sense of the underlying um, nature of the place, uh, literally the nature of the place. Um, and then from that, you can build on the culture. So I feel at home, it relaxes me. If I'm feeling stressed, wherever I am, you know, this isn't a natural habitat for me. I don't, I'm feeling quite, um, I feel out of place here because I am out of place, but I walk out into nature, and it calms me down, it's a salve, it soothes me. Um, it's certainly something that we've all experienced this year. Um, you know, when we were, you know, when we're locked down, of course, that green space doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a garden, you know, whether it's a, a window box, a garden, uh, you know, a park, it doesn't matter what it is, suddenly we, we value it in a way that we perhaps didn't do so before. And, and that's all a biophile is doing, but he's just doing it all the time. And there's a lot of us out there. I mean, you're probably one as well. I bet, I bet you can't watch, walk past a river without going, oh, what's that? There? No, it's got to happen. You already start unravelling. Yeah, you, when, you already start unravelling it in your head, don't you? When, when I proposed to my, um, my girlfriend, we, we were walking over a river and it's when the grayling was spawning. 
And I thought, I'll do it on the bridge. But the grayling was spawning. So I thought, oh, hang on a minute. And then I just started watching them for a couple of minutes. And then I thought, oh, I should probably get on with this. <laughs> so uh, grayling nearly knackered Hold up. Hold your eye. There's a grayling. There's a grayling distributing his milks below us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got to get your priorities straight in these, in these things, Nick. Definitely. <laughs> Oh, I love I love a grayling. Uh, it's one of my favourite fish. They're oh, absolutely they're my favourite. Male grayling breeding condition is stunning. It's just a they are. it's like a peacock, isn't it? Yeah, oil thing. oil painting. I always compared them to with the the different colours they've got in their uh, dorsal fin. They are they are gorgeous. Um, so you you've been a, a wildlife presenter for whew, over twenty years now, I guess. And I and I wondered, <laughs> sorry, sad face. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you thought presenting had changed much in that time for wildlife television. Um, well, I think the, the whole TV environment has changed a lot and how you present. Um, yeah. I, I'm very much, I feel a bit of a dinosaur nowadays, even though I, I, I'm not, I feel, yeah. I still feel the same, but um, the world is very, very different. It's been, it was never deliberate. Being a, being, you know, TV was just a career that I could pursue my interest in natural history within um, and it was a complete accident so it's been a lucky accident and I've managed to maintain it I mean I'm, I mean I'm out here it's given me some of the most amazing experiences of my life but it has you know it's a it's a weird one because it does it does you know there is a um, a compromise you do miss out on other things you do you know family and friends uh, fall by the wayside quite a lot because the job does take over quite a lot and it's difficult because it's my passion so it's what makes me me or certainly the subject is um, so there are certain resentments that develop over time I've kind of I'm of a, a certain age and wisdom now I mean I started presenting which I think my first piece was in 94 94 95 so I've been happy in front of a camera since then. And um, while it's not my, it's not every, it, it's not full time for me now. It was back in the day. I mean, I had several major series going on all at the same time at my peak and I was doing 27, 28 countries a year. Um, my carbon footprint is massive and not something <laughs> to be proud of, I have to say. You know, I'm still me. I still enjoy sharing it. If the medium changes, it, it changes. I think that when I started, it was a lot harder in the sense of you had to know someone in TV. So you had to bang on the uh, the door of the natural history unit. If it was wildlife you're into, you had to go up to survival, angling or whatever. And you just had to, you know, inveigle your way in, in any way you could. Now, when people ask me how to be a presenter, it's like, well... You can just do it. I mean, look what we're doing now. I mean, you can record programs. You can get OBS for your laptop and you can just sit there and record a program. Uh, if you care enough about something and passionate enough about it, there's a million different media platforms you can present it on. Now, I mean, it's good. There's also a lot of rubbish out there as well. So it's good <laughs> to actually study, study the art of TV production a little bit, at least understand how to edit something or... Um, yeah, how to present properly maybe there's a few there's loads of people doing courses again I wouldn't spend any money on it if I was you but um, there's a lot of free stuff out there but but just look at what you like to see look at the things that are important to you and you feel are not being said and then go ahead and say them now how you turn it into money well that is another that's a weird uh, and confusing something I haven't even grasped yet I'm, I can talk for England but um, I'm still not sure how to monetize it I mean you know I can do podcasts I can do all that stuff but I don't really maybe I just can't be bothered to monetize it's like something it just seems like such a, a hassle and uh, I, I struggle with that maybe I can do it some I don't know I just haven't really Every time I think, every time things get desperate enough for me to go, right, I should probably look into this. 
um, a job comes along and I get distracted and off I go again. So, uh, which is fortunate. Um, and I guess it's one of those things, but as far as broadcast goes, it's changed and it's so different to um, how it used to be. Yeah. I don't want the answer is really, but no, yeah, it's definitely no, there changed. probably isn't um, really an answer. It's just, I was just curious on your, your no, thoughts. I mean, it wasn't one thing, really a question, was it? it's, <laughs> it's just an observation. Really. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've noticed is there seems to be more programs, more natural history programs, where they just get some actor or some celebrity to narrate it. So they don't necessarily know anything about the subject. They're just presumably reading yeah. a script or whatever. And that seems to be a lot more popular than actually having someone who knows the subjects. But I guess, I don't know, I'm not a producer, so I don't know why the choice is behind that, whether it's to get the actors following or something like that to engage. I'm not sure. But that, I noticed the last few years, you see a lot more programs where whoever actor is narrating uh, natural history programs. It's a really difficult situation that obviously you can understand why, because those actors come with an audience already. So, and it's a popularization, you know, the, the, the cult of celebrity, um, that's the way it works. But that thing that we used to watch TV, we almost didn't care what color, what, what, um, um, gender, what creed the, the presenter was. Or our age even it didn't really matter if they were ugly or whatever it was the passion that came from within and that was how it used to be and I missed that a little bit that um, I've, there's not many people that I would say know their onions I mean I always think I use, use Fred Dibner as an example who you know I had no interest in steeple steeplejacks churches industrial architecture not interested not interested never crossed not it's just about as far removed from me and and and, and what i'm interested in uh, as you can get yet fred didner comes on as a presenter as a, a, a basically a, a close to retirement steeplejack and i'm in i'm I, he's passionate you know I'm, I'm passionate about anyone who's passionate about their thing it doesn't matter how weird or or outrageous or strange it is i am drawn in and that's what a good presenter should be to me. Um, and this trend away from that has been a, is a bit weird and, and, and somewhat disconcerting. And also turns me off TV. But, you know, if you give me a, a Fred Dibner, um, I'm in there. Yeah, definitely. I, I got asked to be in a book called Dull Men of Great Britain. And it was about... <gasps> me- it was about... I know. It was about men who, like, bottle cap collectors or hedge enthusiasts. A guy who watched pylons. And I think because they thought all I did was look at fish, they thought, oh, this guy just looks through binoculars at fish. And they said, you know, would you like to appear in this book? And I I said, fuck off, basically. But in (laughs) in hindsight, in hindsight, I should have done it for the crack, really. But like you say, these people are passionate about really obscure, weird things. I mean, it was it wasn't there was no money in it, so that's what put me off a little bit as well. But I should have done it for the yeah. fun of it. I should have done it just for the crack, you know. Um, but it's funny what we get offered, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, again, it's those. Yeah, there's something for someone to do that. I mean, obviously, they could be complete loopies, which is another thing. But there, but there is also chances <laughs> are there. There's something driving that fascination, and yeah. I'm curious. I want to get inside their head and work out what it is about this you know and that's sort of why i think that's why animal obsessives i enjoy them so much because there's always something there's always some sort of similar experience some adventure they went on that that set them off down this uh, this road which i guess is pretty much what your podcast is all about really because you're just tapping into those those yeah. moments really and see well, what, what turns people into the people they are today well yeah because there's no money in it so i don't get paid to do this and they're not monetized no ads or anything so i don't I started it off during lockdown because it was like, well, I've got no work and I'm going to drop, I'm going to go mad. So I did it as a way of keeping me busy 
and to talk to people because you know like you were saying you know it, it can get you down a little bit and if you're not talking to people so it was a great way I mean I started off talking to friends in the industry and then I branched out to you know more personalities like yourself so I'm really enjoying it it's not a, it's not getting in the way at the moment so I'm going to carry it on as long as I can but um yeah no it's a great thing to to try and to try and do I think yeah. anyway so how many I, have you done now oh well, well over 50 now by by the time of recording so um that's good going. yeah I'm a busy beaver I mean sometimes I'll do it tends to be they come out every Tuesday but I might so for example you know it's uh, world fish migration day uh, on tomorrow on Saturday and if you know that but it's world fish migration really? day so um so I've done a, a different podcast each day this week leading up to it with interviewing fishy people basically like you know from all over the place who work with fish migration so sometimes I'll do little special weeks but normally it's it's one a week so that's my mid podcast plug but if you're already listening if you're this far in I feel like you're a safe bet that you're going to make it to the end to be fair unless we go horribly yeah, wrong well, that's good. So, so is this just British fish or are you doing fish from no the we d- so I know I spoke to uh, someone from the Marcia Trust the other day so I'd love to see I've not done many fish abroad and that's something that Hopefully, when um, I can get around a little bit more, I'd love to see a Marcia. I don't know if you, you have any experience with those in India or Thailand or anything like no, that. No, no, not at all. No, and the, the one I was most fascinated with was the um, um, the shad migrations on the east coast of uh, of America. That was that's a big deal. Um, yeah, and watching what, uh, those up the river. We used to have them here. Historically, we used to have shad in our. In fact, well, as you know, very incredibly rare fish nowadays. Yeah. Occasionally, I think one or two are seen but there's a few but, um, yeah, but not many yeah yeah but it's a big deal it used to be a big just as, as big as salmon or trout um at its at its peak i mean salmon and trout migrations now are pretty pathetic compared to what they would have been historically but um but uh, yeah to to see the shad migration and to see the frenzy that goes with it all the, the fishermen out they've got people pointing at rivers. you know normal people getting excited and pointing at rivers is great i mean that's you know, we need to see more of that and uh, do and definitely. yeah it takes but uh, but yeah it's a really uh, it's a fascinating subject so i'm gonna listen that's two podcasts now i've got to listen to there you go i know you've got to catch up 48 more to go but (laughs) (laughs) i is yeah (laughs) although like i say we're nearly 40 minutes in i feel like people are probably here here for the end now but we'll we'll see um that's two plugs let's see if we get a third one in (laughs) that's it we'll go uh, freeze the charm isn't it over the years you've worked on you know many tv series with many people and uh, certainly, one of the ones I remember you is on on the really wild show. So I just wondered how did how did that come about? That was really that was a bit of a. I mean, I, I started the whole process started when I was at university. I mean, I've always I've always presented, I've always shouted about my subject because my subject is so unpalatable to most people that when they go, I can't stand that reaction. <laughs> I react to it and I I pull them in and go, right, come here and say that. Look, look, I'll show you what it's like. And I'll show you what I see. And then and if you still go, then I guess I've tried. Um, so it started off doing, I, was, I did some local radio interviews because I set up a club for kids called the Bug Club, um, which is now running with the Royal Entomological Society of London. But uh, no, back then it was RES, then it went to the Amateur Entomological Society. It's really boring details. But the point is, I set up the club that I would want it as a kid. Um, so I set it up with a, a lecturer of mine um, at university. That got the, the imagination of the press, which went into print locally um, when I was based in Exeter. And uh, that made the national press because it was, it was a bit of a slow news day, I think. And it kind of made the national press. And then I got onto Blue Peter. So I brought the bug cup onto Blue Peter. So people got to see me that way. And simultaneously, I was working on a very rare butterfly on, on, on Dartmoor, which is the high brown fertility. And again, 
the scientists were doing this amazing work. I was part of a team that were working on this bus lay in the field, but no one was shouting about it. So I did it for them. Um, and of course that made the press as well. And that made local radio, made radio four. Um, and I basically, it, lots of experience it came at different angles. And one day um, a guy called Kelvin Boot, who was the guy interviewing me said, you should do this. You're quite good at this stuff, you know. Um, you know, I had a sound bite. Um, hard to believe. Listen to me waffle on nowadays, but um, I was good at the sound bite, and um, and I wasn't what you'd expect to see as a naturalist back then. I had a ponytail and earrings and wore all sorts of peculiar clothes. So, so they jumped at that. Um, I was um, given a little flyer that had gone around all the wildlife trusts, which said, "Do you want to be the next Attenborough? Uh, we're looking for new presenters at the Natural History Unit, which is obviously the legendary BBC um, uh, centre in Bristol. So I did a showreel with my girlfriend at the time. It was a media student. It was a terrible showreel and I sent it in. Um, um, and I got invited to an audition uh, and I got the job. So that was a job on Nature Detectives. Um, and it happens that some of the production team on Nature Detectives were also the production team on The Really Wild Show. And it, my timing was just as Chris Packham was about to, you know, I think he had one more series to do and he was winding up and they were looking for someone to replace him. And, um, and I just happened to fall into those shoes at the right time. And I was completely naive to this whole thing. And I did a, about six months as a researcher at the BBC, which I didn't enjoy that much because I'm not really a townie. But again, I had nature to fall back on. I had the peregrines up at the Clifton Gorge and there was loads of great woodland and I'd just go out and scamper around outside of work. So it was all fine. And that's it. That's how it started. Um, so experience, you know, random experience in front of a camera and with a microphone, being told I was okay at it. Hadn't really thought about doing this before until that moment. I thought, well, I've got nothing else. It's either that or a life full of short-term conservation contracts, which nothing wrong with that, but there's not a lot of security in that. Mind you, there's not a lot of security in TV either, um, especially at the moment. So um, I just went off down that path and, you know, I never, I'd never traveled. I'd never been on an aeroplane. I'd never seen outside of the UK. Um, so, you know, these, that was a ticket to adventure and I was off and I saw things in that first year working for the wild show. I saw things I would have just never dreamed of seeing and experiencing and, and it's very addictive and, uh, and I'm still doing it to this day. Really. I've got no plans and no idea how to build this career. I'm just doing, everyone goes, well, will you do this? Oh yeah, I'll do that. And off I go again. And it's like, there's no career. It's just, I'm just bimbling along. I probably should start thinking about what I want to do when I grow up really, but it's, uh, I'm still enjoying it. And, um, for now, as long as I can just about scrape through and it is just about scraping through this year, um, I will carry on doing it, I guess. It's amazing how uh, incestuous wildlife TV is, isn't it? Like well, you'll get one person who works on one program and then they go to another one and that kind of carries you with them almost. So I've, I've found that anyway with the, with the filming side of things. And we, I was talking to yeah. um, uh, Lindsay McRae, who was the cameraman who did the penguins on uh, Dynasty. And he was Lindsay saying, well, yeah. you do know Badger Lindsay. Boy, I know him as. That's the one. Yeah, and, Badger uh, Boy. That's it, yeah, Badger Boy. And he was saying that... Um, you know, to, to a degree, I mean, you've got to know your stuff, but it's also who, who you know. Like you say, like, you know, if you know the right person at the right time, it's, it's going to help, isn't it? If you know when to, when to pitch ideas or who to speak to yeah. about certain things. But it's a, it's a tricky industry, to, to say the least, as you, you and I certainly know. And it's, it, it, it is who you know to an extent. But, it's, um, but what you mustn't do is assume that just because you're a presenter that you have all the answers and that, um, yeah, because people are always approaching me going, how did you become a presenter? How did I get into, I said, well, I'm, I'm struggling for work myself. So I'm the worst <laughs> person, you know, I'm not a success. So I'm the worst person to ask. What you want to do is get into the production side of things. Um, you know, you want to be off camera, that's the place to do it. Because then there's a, there's a clear career path. 
to be a presenter, you, you're da -da, and that's sort of it. You know, it's like that's it. You get in front of a camera, and that is it. You're there, and then it's then to do it again, to do it again is really difficult, and that sustaining it is difficult because, again, nowadays that celebrity culture means the moment you're the big thing, the, the new big thing, there's someone already looking for the next big thing, and it's a very short-lived um, existence. I mean, I'm, I've been lucky. I can't say why or how, but I've had my ups and downs. You know, um, you know, it's it's you know, you get times where you've got more requests than you can deal with, and then you've got times when you're sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. So you get on and write a book, or you start doing guiding work, or or do. I, I went back to my roots. I started working in on in in the field again doing field ecology in fact i've got a I've got a fish job i've just applied for so uh oh, good um, man yeah <laughs> so yeah so who knows but yeah we're always out there we're always putting it around and just just you know just as long as i enjoy it i think that's the most important thing but uh, but yeah as a, yeah a career in tv is a, a strange one you've got to enjoy it don't think it's going to make you rich and famous no more it might no. make you a little bit famous or infamous yeah but, infamous uh, more likely stuck in a, an airport hotel uh, like this, this is it. This is my entire habitat. You can see it's in the frame now. It's my entire habitat for the uh, for the next two weeks. And that skipping rope, that's, that's my exercise right there. <laughs> that's, all, that's all. That's all I've got to go on. So yeah, it's not quite as glamorous as people uh, people sometimes think. It has its moments though. So when you're not stuck in hotel rooms in in Japan, have you got a species that you would? That you would love to see that you're not yet to see because obviously you you've been to lots of places but there must be a species that you haven't seen yet or the one that you'd love to see oh gosh what in the uk or uh, no no anywhere it can be anywhere oh it's so difficult because <laughs> i and also i like to see things more than once as well um yeah i i really um I, well, I still haven't seen a pink fairy armadillo um and that's an animal that i've, uh, I've yeah. been very desperately I'd love to see a giant, uh, weird enough, a giant Japanese or Chinese salamander. Unfortunately, I'm not going to yeah. see one on this trip, but uh, that's an yeah. animal. Which They'd be up there for me as well. Place. I'd love to see one of those. Yeah, I've seen them in aquariums. I've seen yeah. them. There's an aquarium in Germany. I think I've seen them in. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, that, that's an animal I'd love to see. But then there's just, just loads of. I mean, uh, yeah, it's just loads of stuff out there. I mean, it says you know, there's a. I've scratched the surface really in the number of in the species out there that I'd like to see. I'd love to, in the UK. I want to see a shining guest ant. That's my. Um, All right, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, the shining guest ant, and of course um, the uh, the new fox spider. Well, the fox spider has just been rediscovered on a Surrey Heath, and that's another ah. one I want to see. So, uh, so yeah, there's loads of. So this is the thing. What I don't want to do is create this this illusion that all I want to do is travel the world and see things. I've been very lucky. No, I, mean, yes. I don't do it without. Huge amounts of guilt because actually it's it's this sort of travelling that causes half the problems that the world's in at the moment. I mean, I know there's there's other bigger issues as well, but but um, but you could take away my passport. Uh, obviously, don't do it now because I'll never get home. Um, <laughs> but if I'm back in the UK and they take away my passport, then I am um, still be happy. You know, yeah. there's plenty of stuff to see. Uh, that we live in a fantastic cluster of islands and. Uh, there's plenty I haven't seen or experienced. And there's loads of stuff I want to see again and again and again, you know? <laughs> there's so, a lot. Uh, yeah. There's a lot out there, isn't there? And I wonder, do you have any bugbears in, because obviously you've worked in wildlife filmmaking a hell of a lot. Is there anything in wildlife filmmaking that kind of ticks you off a little bit or wish, wish didn't happen? Manipulation of the subject and the narrative. Um, I like real stuff. I like reality as it unfolds as opposed yeah. to... Um, contrived reality so someone said right here's some behavior that happens and now we're going to put together a series of shots to show it that is I mean 
I don't know if it's done as much as it used to be. I'll be honest with you, I don't watch as much natural history TV as I used to. No. Um, partly because I've been too close to it for too long and I, I get a bit frustrated with it. And I often end up shouting at the screen. But um, it's, uh, which is a, an interesting picture of, of, a, of an angry man <laughs> in his armchair throwing uh, the remote of the TV. But no, I kind of, um, yeah, I think that's probably one of my bugbears because I can you can see when it's not, and, and that's yeah. the thing. For me, I like to see it happening for real in nature as nature intended. And don't get me wrong, I'm guilty. I mean, I've been involved with all sorts of um, um, setups and stuff over over the years. But uh, but the stuff I enjoy seeing as much is when it unfolds naturally, and uh, and you see also real people involved in real reactions. I love that blowing the cover of the TV technique. I love that behind the scenes stuff. I mean, I made a career out of doing it. You know, we 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 ran such such cheap programs we had such a small budget we couldn't compete with the big blue chip shiny blue chip programs so when we did a tv show like weird creatures pretty much everything we shot ended up on screen so you saw the natural process so if anyone in the audience had was lucky enough to find themselves in my uh, my shoes um you know in the forest of borneo what you saw on screen and the, the, the frustrations that we had were pretty much what anyone would experience so um yeah, so that's that's the sort of TV I like because it, it's real and it, and and you feel it and um, and that's and and it also it doesn't set you up for disappointment. I mean, how many of us have gone out there looking for that that Scottish otter, just like you know, just like Simon King shot on the on you know all that beautiful close up, see the droplets running running down its whiskers as it's chomping on a butterfish sitting on a lovely bladderwrack covered boulder in uh, in glorious sunlight. Always, I've hardly ever seen it once, maybe. I've yeah. seen hundreds of otters, thousands of otters, and I've but they're usually not uh, beautifully lit and they're usually not that close. When it does happen, it's magical, of course, but but it doesn't make it any less magical when they're at a distance. It's just, of course, that's that's the illusion that's created and it sets you up for disappointment. I, I, I take people out and show them wildlife for part of my existence. And uh, I take them out there and I can't help but think that people are very disappointed with that golden eagle because it's like a little dot. I said, no, no, look, it's displaying. And then all they can see <laughs> is like one pixel dropping out the sky and hitting another pixel. And, you know, that's, that's what it might as well be. And it's very difficult to get across the, 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 the glamour of that bird when it's at such a distance but that's because that's what people expect him to see that's the animal that's on the brochure you know that yeah. nice close-ups on the brochure so, so we're sort of guilty and people come running along thinking they're going to see it up nice and close and the reality is you're going to see it and you're going to see it for real but it's going to be a long way off it's going to be like that yeah. Lucky. yeah yeah definitely i i the 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 kind of piece of footage that always i remember as a kid i mean god knows what program it was some american one it was a a mouse in America that how or apparently it howls. You you might know the species. And yes, there's, yes, this, yes. there's a really terrible shot of like a moon superimposed behind its head and it's howling in front of it. And then it fights a scorpion. Yes. And at the time I was like, oh that's amazing. But looking back on it, I was like, that's almost certainly just done in a studio and they've just flung a scorpion and a mouse to have a punch up. So it's um you know, I know I know it goes on. It's a, it's a shame to a degree, but it's yeah. It's funny looking at it now because you kind of yeah, but well, that, you remember it. I mean, yeah, I do remember, remember it. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's done its job. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. Uh, I mean, so that's a sort of uncomfortable bit where you actually think, well, actually, I do remember that. I think I remember Life on Earth when it first came out. That's how old I am, and I remember sitting there being allowed to stay up late to see it because obviously everything Attenborough said was was gospel, and uh, and my family would approve of educational television. So I'd sit down, and that was the one when he when he they found the coelacanth. This was back in the day where 
it was real. It's a real red letter day. You know, it's, we didn't know what we knew about coelacanths now. And they got this, dragged this fish up from the depths where it probably ruptured its swim bladder and all sorts of other things. And then they, they stuck it, um, they stuck it in shallow water and filmed it. So it was the first footage of a coelacanth, I believe, in the wild. And and but they 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 told the story like, look, we didn't, you know, this is not how it would be naturally but it's the best we can do under the circumstances. And that I, it was contrived, but they told us it was. Yeah, um, there's no, there's no cloak and dagger, is there? But, um, and that sort of thing is fine. I think that, oh, that sort of honesty. I mean, I don't mean sort of killing, killing brilliant animals, but I mean, they didn't do the killing. It had been caught by some fishermen and they just tried to refloat it effectively. But, but the point is it was, it felt real. It was proper adventure. It was proper discovery as opposed to, you know, contrived science and I, I i i prefer to see that myself it's a i mean it's very personal i guess but that's yeah. my view on it yeah no no i can see i can see what you mean so you've seen all kinds of creatures great and small have you had any kind of close calls or any frightening encounters where you're like Oof. well i have but it's again it's, it, that's close to being the is there any animals that are you scared of or any animal i'm not really not really no. um i've had moments of um you know i've been very close to being bitten uh by snakes that i should know better um that to handle uh, i think the first time i picked up a cotton mouth in america i was amazed that this because i don't generally i mean i can snake wrangle i mean i breed i've bred snakes i don't have many that i breed now but you know i've had lots of snakes over the years and I'm, i sort of know what i'm doing with snakes and i'd call I, i've never kept hot snakes or venomous snakes and um i caught this cotton mouse because yeah, how hard can it be just like yeah. any other snake why you know? not um but what it did what it did was it kind of shape-shifted i didn't realize just how floppy their heads can become and i had it i had it in like the you know the classic sort of head grip and the whole thing sort of rearranged its skeletal muscles in its head and it and then its fangs went boing, out the side of its mouth and it started trying to reach over you know over its neck to stab me and it was just like oh <laughs> so i had moments like that where i mean very close and you know a very steep learning curve i think the you know things like the worst i'm not a massive fan of handling rodents is difficult no I, i've been nailed i can pick up bugs absolutely fine but mammals freak me yeah. out no yeah they got teeth and brains and they're the two things you don't want in close proximity to each other because they know what they're doing. And also when you're dealing with rodents, they've got self-sharpening blades in their mouth. They're not like, like, like us where our teeth get blunt. These are, um, you know, they, they are, you know, they've, they've got hard dentine, uh, sorry, enamel on the front and dentine at the back, which is soft, which means that the back wears away quicker than the front, which means it's always got an edge. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so, you know, a squirrel, trying to get a squirrel out of a strawberry net or, um, I mean, the worst bites I've ever had um, have been a squirrel, um, in fact, two squirrels have bitten me uh, and required stitches and, a, and the school hamster that I looked after once, you know, they, they're the worst <laughs> bites I've ever had, which aren't very glamorous, they're not glamorous, so considering the number of exotic animals I've been in close proximity to, then they're, they're not the worst. I mean, I've been charged by rhinos and things like that, um, they're... they're that's usually context that fills you with fear because you yeah. weren't expecting it. You know, that when things make you jump, but if you go in and you're prepared, it's not really, it's not really a, a scary thing. Um, no. And situations, you know, I, I remember getting stuck in a, well, looking for vampire bats in a Costa Rican railway tunnel that was disused only to find out when we we're halfway along it, that actually there was a train coming. Things like God. that are where, you know, my life flashed before my eyes and I've amazingly got out of them. Usually it's not quite as bad as it seemed at the time, but, um, but there's lots of things that, that, um, 
yeah, th there's lots of fearful moments, and I guess they are close calls, but they're not the ones that necessarily are that exciting. No, no, I know what you mean, definitely. Uh, not that I've had, you know, too many close calls. I think the closest I've had a pike that got the, got the corner in my hand and I've got a, a bit of a scarf. It's, it's a pitiful scar, it's a tiny one, but that's about as close as I've got well, to, you know. you know. actually bitten by a pike. I'm well, I, I was, they won't bite you, you're fine. <laughs> Well, I was releasing it, so it was one that an anger had caught. So it didn't it didn't bite me like out of aggression. You'd be very unfortunate for a pike to do that. You know, I've not had a pike yeah. a, a trout go for the jugular or, or an eel try to strangle me or anything like that. I've been, <laughs> been pretty good. As I say, we've talked about all these different species, all these different groups. Have you got a particular group of animals that you I know we've mentioned creepy crawlies, but that, that's a very broad term. Is there a specific kind of family or genus that you're like? They are absolutely incredible and they kind of utterly fascinate you. Oh, for variety. Oh, so again, this is really difficult. <laughs> I love, I love the phasmids. I love stick insects. Oh, Just okay. for that variation on the theme. You get them in Devon, I'm, don't you, as well? I'm quite Yeah, we do. We've got we've got two or three species. We're really getting into my micro moths now. So yeah, there's lots of yeah, it's really difficult to answer that question because it almost depends on what day it is as opposed to what animal I'm getting into. Yeah. Um, frogs. Frogs, I'm really into, especially in the tropics, I often go frogging. That's one of my favourite pastimes. Run, <laughs> is, um, that the, is that the technical term, frogging? Often more frogging, and she seems to accept it, so that's good. Now, I, do, I just go off and look for frogs. I love the perfection of, of, of frogs. And um, and as a, as a British kid, um, you know, we're somewhat limited in the number of species of frogs we've got in the UK. So you go to the tropics or anywhere that wasn't touched by the, uh, the last uh, glacial period, and um, you've got massive frog diversity. So salamanders are the same. So if I, if I go to the mountain um, range that runs up the East Coast, um, Appalachian Trail, for example, Appalachians up in the Ozarks, you know, that's the... That's like, like the world diversity capital for, for salamanders. You know, it's where if you want, if you're into newts, go there for your holidays and you'll okay. see more species of salamander than you'll ever see. So, so these are all, I mean, again, as you gathered, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a biophile. I'm, a, I'm into multiple different groups. So I could, it just depends. This year, uh, this year I've been, um, I've been working on my bees and wasps, you know, my solitary bees and wasps. Yeah. And I'm about to, I'm just about to write a book on, on pond exploration, which you'll appreciate. In yeah. fact, I'll be in touch because I've got some questions for you. But um, yeah, but, um, yeah I'm going to I'm doing a, I'm going to write the the quintessential guide to, to pond exploring because there is nothing out there that really does no. the job. And, um, um, I want to, I want to show people the way into how you unravel a pond, and um, so I'm going to be doing that. So so that this year or next year is probably almost. And they're going to be water beetles. Um, so it yeah. becomes, it's just, it's the way, I, you know, you just get into something and, uh, and, and we all do it. So some people do it with games, computer games, some people do it with Lego, you know, or, you know, whatever it is. So for me, it's, it's, it's various taxons of creatures and I, I, um, I enjoy it. And as we get to a certain age, I forget about it all pretty quick as well. So it all goes in, <laughs> get into it. And then the next year, someone says, oh, you're a water beetle expert or you're really into your news. What's this? And you just go, Oh, that was last year. I can't remember. And you have to consult the diaries. And always keep rigorous notes. So I think that's my that's my uh, my parting word of wisdom because your brain isn't always going to be quite as sharp as it is now. Uh, so, so, so it's always good to have this you know library of notebooks you can call back on and uh, and remind yourself what it was that you had just seen or those little things, those little tricks that uh, that uh, that helped you out the first time round. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned wasps briefly there. I, I can't remember what program I was watching, but the, the parasitic wasps. And there's one that 
You get the wasps that get the caterpillars, but then you get parasitic wasps that parasitize parasitic wasps. And it's almost yes. like a never ending cycle. Yeah, hyperparasitism is, yeah, it's, it's cool enough how a parasitic wasp selects a caterpillar. Yeah. Then you've got the wasp that select the caterpillars that have a wasp grub in them. So that's, you know, it's a, a, a wasp inside a wasp inside a caterpillar. And then you get, so that's a, a hyperparasitism. Then you get um, secondary hyperparasitism. So it's another wasp lays its egg in. And it, I think you can get quaternary parasitism. So it's four four wasps inside one caterpillar. Well, and they're um, all different species or would they be the same? Species, all different species, yeah. And that, I mean, that's the world we're living in. And we don't even begin to understand that because we don't pick up on the cues like that. You know, it'd be tiny, tiny particles of odor, um, you know, various cues and clues that they're picking up on. So, and that's, yeah, if you want your mind well and truly blown, get into insects, any insects will do. Wasps is a good start because uh, nobody loves wasps. And they, I often get that question, what's the point of wasps? And it's, that's a brilliant one. I roll my sleeves up and I yeah. get into it. The vein, the I, vein pops on your head and you're like, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like one of those things, it's like, well, why does there have to be a point to anything? Um, uh, but I try and swallow that one and carry on and just go, right, okay, let's just take the solitary wasp because that's, I'm assuming, is what you're referring to. And then you, dis, you dismantle what a wasp is, what it is you're actually afraid of, because um, uh, ultimately it's based, ignorance is based in some fear somewhere, and it's often the sting. Um, and when you explain what the sting, the sting is, how it's used, and how expensive it is for a wasp to use it, you start feeling a bit more sorry for them. And then when you look at the, the jobs they do for us, the recycling they do, the, you know, we like bees because they pollinate, well, so do wasps. Um, we like ladybirds because they eat the aphids, well, so do wasps. So, you know, there's plenty of reasons to get into wasps if you're just looking for, I guess, uh, ecological services. But when you start getting to the solitary wasps um, and then the parasitic wasps, your brain just explodes. It's a, it's a steep rabbit hole to, to get down to, but one that I'm sure is, is fun for everyone to explore these creatures. Well, look, Nick, it's been great to talk to you, and I hope you enjoy the, uh, your Japanese adventure. I will. I'll be posting stuff on Instagram as I go. I don't know when this is due to go out. It may not be relevant, but... Uh, <laughs> It'll um, be I'll at be the minute. Stuff. You're looking next year, I think. So, <laughs> so it'll be a while. I'll be back. We're all going to Japan. Let's get stuck in Japan. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, in that case, look back on my Instagram feed and you'll see the pictures of what I got up to. <laughs> in fact, you might even watch the programme on the BBC. Yeah, maybe. Know. It might even be on BBC Two. So, uh, <laughs> Anyway, be. it's been a pleasure, Jack. It's been lovely to chat to you. Always, you're one of uh, you're one of my favourite people in the sense of you're 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 one of the one of the good ones. You know, you're one of the the, the folk that uh, continues inspires me. Um, and, um, and and I love the fact you're doing this podcast. And hopefully, you'll uh, you'll find you'll find even more fortune in this uh, in this world of broadcasting because uh, wow. you're one of the you're one of the special ones that is is one of those presenters that knows his onions and uh, and of course your fish book by the way i did the review of that for bbc wildlife magazine and i meant every word it is fantastic it's what's called the secret life of british freshwater fish i think it's called isn't it's it? uh hang on yeah, of course I, of course I do. The complex lives of British freshwater fishing. Um, you need a copy, don't you? Yeah, have a word with the publishers because they I promised me. I'm going to review that from a PDF, which is very, very unsatisfactory. But, yeah, uh, I will give the them a nudge. It's absolutely brilliant. I know it's the third plug, by the way. This is—it's not a plug. There we podcast, go. We've got it in. We've got it in. It's all, <laughs> and, and there's no stick fancy here. It's genuinely an awesome book. It's a book that shows you fish like you've never before thought of seeing fish. It's the book that 
is should have been written a long time ago. Yeah, good man. I'll yeah. I'll, I'll send you that five quid down for that for that plug. Um, yeah. Look, buddy. Look. maybe maybe. I'll be happy with that. Okay. Although we'll take care, Nick, and uh, we'll see each other soon. I'm sure. Will do. Nice one, Jack. We'll catch up with you soon. That was Nick Baker. Great to chat to him. I think one of the things that shines through is his passion for a wide array of subjects, but also his knowledge. He knows he's a fountain of knowledge. He knows so much about more or less everything that he's talking about. So that is absolutely great. And I can't wait to watch that series uh, that's going to be on. I don't know the name of it, but keep your eyes peeled. I'm sure Nick will be publicising it on his Instagram and Twitter when that comes out. Now, the next few podcasts are going to have a bit of a theme, and that's going to be an angling theme, largely because I'm working on my biggest project ever, which is Britain's Hidden Fishers. And it's a crowdfunding campaign to make an hour-long film on Britain's marine and freshwater fish, because they just don't get the love that they deserve. So it's not an angling film, but obviously anglers will be interested in it. So for the next four or five podcasts, I'm going to be interviewing people working in angling TV, kind of well-known superstars, if you like, about their experiences. Everything from Hugh Miles, who's going to be on next week. For those of you who don't know, he's an amazing wildlife filmmaker. He filmed a lot of the Attenborough series, but he also made Passion for Angling, which is largely regarded as the best angling series ever made. But Matt Hayes, John Bailey, uh, and many, many more interesting people over the next few weeks, and giving you weekly updates on what is happening with the crowdfunder. So keep your eyes peeled from that. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will see you next time. Cheers.